Right, so I'm drinking decaf coffee. Brian's drinking decaf coffee. Well, I just finished mine. What are you drinking, Cam? Well, I'm continuing a hyper-caffeinated cup of coffee that, being in Singapore lockdown, I've splurged and got myself a French press. So I sort of make a big pot in the morning, Ooh. and I've just gotten to the end, so now it's like iced coffee with a few ice cubes by this point. Yeah. Ice coffee Whoa. is like very so Singapore. Six, 12 hours of coffee. I can't remember the um, Singaporean for ordering an iced coffee. I just I think it's coffee peng for iced coffee. And then if you wanted it with no sugar, you'd say coffee peng kosong. Whereas I would usually just have coffee si kosong, which is like no added milk, no sugar. Welcome, affixes, fixes, and aficionados to the Affix Podcast, the fortnightly podcast where we take you through the latest writings of the modern internet intelligentsia, covering off all the bases on what's happening in the world of philosophy, business, economics, finance, all that fun stuff, as well as having silly bets at huge stakes of a coffee and covering off the latest news in Diablo 2. Now, you might have noticed there was an extra voice at the start there. I don't know how you could have possibly missed it, but we've got a special guest this week. Hey, everyone. So, Cameron is a friend of mine from university. He's one of these friends that I pick up way after I meet them. I sort of meet people and I'm like, that's a cool guy. I should be friends with him one day. And then I don't talk to them for five years. And then five years later, I'm like, hey, cool guy. Can we be friends now? And Cam graciously accepted, which I appreciate. He is always reading very interesting things and posting them on Facebook. I feel like... He may have been a significant portion of why I'm now reading Marginal Revolution. Brian was reading it and Cam was reading it, and I was always reading it off Cam's Facebook feed was the only place I would come across it. And then when Brian talked about the article, I'm like, wait, I read that. Isn't that from that blog with the green thingy? So thank you very much, Cam, for, you know, they say you got to be recommended something five or six times before it takes, and you, uh, you, both of you were a big part of me reading Tyler Cohen, which now shapes a significant portion of my life and is an inspiration for this podcast. And yes, we've got Cam on. He had... A significant pushback on our peak culture episode. So we asserted blithely that we were peak culture, perhaps a little tongue-in-cheek, but found a very interesting article on why the Avengers is so much better than Citizen Kane. Cam took issue with that, so we've got him here to, to discuss. We've got some feedback on Tricameral Congress because he had a surprising amount to say with that last time we caught up. So this will be a slightly different episode in that our feedback will be from a listener. Amazing. I feel like the feedback is an instantiation of, I think Diderot said, you have this phenomenon of the spirit of the staircase where... You're leaving the drawing room after a conversation. You go down the stairs and then you realise, oh, I should have said that. That would have been so witty. That's what I should have said. So I feel like the feedback sessions are exactly that. And being able to sort of come on the podcast, where often I listen to it as I'm walking out of my apartment building down the stairs. So it's like <laughs> a realisation of the spirit of the staircase. Perfection. Oh, 100% that. That's great. <laughs> so just as we're bringing you into the podcast, I'm not going to grow you too hard on your background there, Cam, but... <laughs> You said that you're currently in Singapore, and I'm just interested because, you know, I'm, I just want to squeeze out every possible insight we can get. Can you give <laughs> us some Singapore stories? Singapore stories. So it's been really interesting to see how Singapore is often treated as like a cultural acclimatisation pool for a lot of Western expatriates like myself. So like I was born and raised in Australia, grew up in the country, grew up in Wodonga, where guys sort of have lived, Aubrey Wodonga being the wonderful co metropolis that it is. And so a lot of Westerners who want to sort of transition into working in Asia, a lot of them actually go via Singapore because it retains a lot of features of like British colonization. So like English is the lingua franca, 
here in Singapore, but it's sort of co-equal with Chinese and Malay. And there may be another language as well, but like government is very keen to say like no English and all these other languages and all these cultures are sort of all equal within Singapore. But it's very easy to sort of navigate as someone who only speaks English. Like I've not had sort of any issue other than maybe ordering coffee where I've needed to learn Malay or Chinese. Um, but I do feel like I'm, I'm picking up tiny things. So like I picked up like North, South, East and West in like Chinese, I think in the Mandarin. So it's a really nice sort of like transitional state where if you want to sort of work more broadly in Asia, you sort of spend a bit of time in Singapore so you get sort of the best of home and the best of the new culture. Um, and it becomes like a great way to sort of acclimatize literally to the culture and also the climate. Uh, before going further afield to other parts of Asia. Awesome. Nice one. And I also hear that frequently mentioned person, Rob Wiblin, you are quite familiar with. So I, I've not actually had a, a chat with Wiblin in ages, but I was friends with him at uni. So we both went to ANU and I remember in like my first sort of week uh, at ANU, this would have been back in 2008 when I started. And I think Wiblin was living on campus at the time and he was developing quite a Facebook following as he would just post interesting articles all the time. I think he was like saying to people when he would meet them in a week, hey, if you want to continue this conversation, you should follow me on Facebook um, and we can talk about all these sort of articles that I share. <laughs> uh, he, he's, he's very... Yeah, like, an influencer. He's very personable. Like, it has to start somewhere, you know? Like, there has to be someone in Meatspace who you eventually get on and then they can start the word of mouth online and in Meatspace to get you to follow someone on Facebook. But you have to like reach out to someone to kickstart that process. So I imagine that was either like him in O week or maybe like it was a carryover from his uh, high school days, I think in Adelaide, uh, where he grew up. So I was just like meeting a whole lot of people. I can't remember what conversations we were having, but they were saying, hey, if you like talking about this kind of stuff, there's this guy called Rob Woodlin he shares interesting stuff on Facebook all the time. I'm like, using Facebook to have heady intellectual discussions? Like, how absurd. I mean, it is now. Oh, yeah. A good thing has evolved towards that over the years. I know. I know. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Um, that's very different to my uni experience of doing just Facebook, like Futurama trivia quizzes or whatever. <laughs> Which character are you? Like, it's always Zoidberg, right? <laughs> so, um, I just remember Wiblin, I think he had like a, a saying uh, that was like at the top of his banner where he'd say like, I like to explore arguments or be argumentative, but I don't genuinely believe a lot of the things I argue just because I'm trying to explore the argument space. So he sort of like, you know, he says like, I'm 30% less confident in the things that I say that I may appear to be. And I remember he would sometimes go on like local radio where we had like a campus personality who hosted a local radio um, show in Canberra. And had Wiblin on just talk about interesting things. And like his intro was, this is a guy who posts interesting things on Facebook in Canberra. Rob, we would like to talk to you about some of your recent posts. And he did. Wow. What a career. And then, so remind me, who is Rob Wilburn again today? Is he still just famous-ish on Facebook guy? I mean, that's actually, a, before we get into what he actually does right now, famous on Facebook is genuinely a career these days. I could believe that. Yes. He was like... I feel like famous on Instagram is a career. I don't know whether famous on Facebook yeah, is technically wow. a career. Social media influencer, for sure. It, yeah, yeah. It certainly feels definitely. like those um, sort of like new frontiers where it's like whether it's like creating a new industry or a new technology, you always have like these gifted amateurs who rush in and they're like the pioneers, but over time it just becomes professionalized. And it sort of feels that way with like Rob being like an early Facebook influencer where it was just totally amateur, almost happened by accident. And now these days, like, because it's been around for a while, it's become institutionalized. You have to get, like, 
apps that help you with your Facebook. Like you have to get like Buffer to queue up your posts and check your metrics and everything. Whereas Rob was just doing it all himself back in the day. A natural talent. Wow, that's some enthusiasm. And that's why he's now sitting as, what is it, head of research at 80,000 hours? I think that's right, yeah. As we mentioned last week, working his way through 80,000 hours of recording time on a podcast. (laughs) Per podcast. Per Per podcast, I've definitely listened to podcast episodes where he's not the one talking, like he'll have guests on to do like a dialogue and he'll just sort of intro it and extro it. So it would be possible for that podcast to reach 80,000 hours without it just being Rob Woodland. So he would have time for his day job as well. That's true. Yeah, okay. Whew. All right. So I guess with that, Chris has lined this up to be a big feedback episode and then a little bit on the end. But I just want to get in and still run things the old way. I just can't get out of my old habits by covering off my feedback, those stairway thoughts on the previous episode. And it's actually pretty brief, so this is the perfect episode for it. Pretty much the only thoughts I had to myself on this working through it. So we talked about, when we're talking about voting systems, we talked about, you know, distributing things by age and don't older people have any wisdom to share and why should we be privileging the young over the old given that, you know, there can be arguments made for the political system that the youth should have more power because they have to live with the outcomes for longer. And we had this whole kind of discussion about it. And it made me think a lot, and you'll love this one, Chris, about reading through Aristotle's ethics, the discussion on the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. And there can certainly be some very, very smart 20-year-olds. I'm not going to dismiss that whatsoever. There are some incredible pieces of genius that can come out of a 20-year-old. But the fact is, it's not wisdom necessarily, because wisdom requires a certain level of kind of ingrained belief, a certain amount of experiences behind it so that you are less likely to shift from that position of wisdom over time. It's kind of like, I don't know, you're a big data science guy, Chris. So as you throw more items in the training set at a algorithm or, you know, even in Bayesian thinking, as your priors get higher and higher, you are less and less likely to shift from that in light of new evidence. Whereas I'd say, you know, a 20 year old, much, much more likely to be a bit more fickle and a bit more likely to change their mind in light of any new evidence, which, you know, might be for the best. It might make society more dynamic. But at the same time, it's like sometimes you might be too fickle and not actually be able to follow through on anything. So Yeah, I was going to say, what do you aspire to be out of those two? I think naturally I'm just going to get more stubborn, to be honest. But I do think there's like... But what do you want to do? Like, is it better? Like, I agree. Like, in theory, you should be learning over the course of your life and career, right? And you should be becoming more and more set in your rights because you should get more and more evidence that you're correct and then be correct. But like, a lot of old people disagree on a lot of things. If they were all converging on the truth, this might be good, but they don't seem to do that. So is this getting more and more stubborn in your ways actually bad? And should you be, you know, holding ideas lightly? Should I be holding things lightly or should I be going towards the Brian Kaplan view of just building a walled garden around myself and isolating myself entirely from society? I think also you know fun. the answer I mean, to that, I thought Chris. you already did that. <laughs> now I was going to say. Don't disrupt my beautiful bubble. Yeah. Isn't that what you spent all of lockdown doing? It's like, I never need to leave this house except to go running. And as soon as I buy a treadmill, I don't even have to leave then. Well, fortunately, I got rid of my treadmill. Running outside is much better. But yes. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's as people get older, they, they sort of can explore the nuance of their beliefs more. So when you're young, you might say, look, I value justice or liberty or something like that. So you have like values that inform your life and your politics. But you don't quite have the experience to round them out. Like you haven't really been in situations where you've had to make a trade-off, for instance. Or, um, you know, if you've got to say something like, should I take a career that's, you know, got higher impact but lower wages? 
you kind of know a lot of things about it, but you haven't experienced making that choice and living with the consequences. So I think experience might just be sort of rounding that out, sort of understanding what it's like to have to make those difficult decisions, and you might sort of realise in future, ah, oh, I would need like a commitment device to make sure that I stick with a difficult action, or, you know, I yeah. thought I would like, you know, this career, but then when I actually did it, I actually hated it, and I realised I didn't have the willpower to just persist to the job that I hated, so now I've kind of learned that, you know, I knew it was like the right career for me, like financially, but I didn't have the experience to know that it would just be horrible when you're inside of it, and that that wouldn't be sustainable, so you're kind of like fleshing out your knowledge with some practical experience, and that better equips you to, you know, make wiser decisions about applying that knowledge in your values in the future. Yeah. Maybe it's just the actual understanding of trade-offs. It's like, I'm all about justice, and justice is the yep. thing that I care about. It's whatever, I read some justice <laughs> poem when I was you know, 15 years old and all of it. And then, you know, because you've never had to trade justice off against anything. So you can say, this is my perfect grinding ideal. And then the first time when you have to trade justice off against making a profit for yourself or one of your family's, you know, business ventures going correctly or whatever, you're like, oh, crap, this is actually harder than I thought. Yeah, actually understanding what a trade-off is as well is just a thing that comes to you over the years. It's like, oh, I've, I didn't realize I was sacrificing that other thing by pursuing this one thing that I thought was inherently good. Like I didn't realize that I was sacrificing a good family life by pursuing a good career or something like that. And finding balance is difficult. You're right. I think that call out yeah. to being nuanced and growing in your depth of understanding and getting caught up in, I guess, more of the weeds is is a good insight on wisdom there. As for myself, Chris, like, to be honest, I'll, I'll go back to like one of my own philosophies I had in my 20s, which I think was, it paid off in the long run. I just wanted to do like a little bit of everything. And it probably comes across mm -hmm. in the discussions here. I came from a rural background. I learned how to fly planes. I learned how to act. I taught myself how to play music and speak Spanish. Like I became a parent. All these things were just like, I want to have a little bit of a slice of every different experience in life so I can understand what's good and also be able to empathize with many different people across all the spectrums of life there is. Yeah. And something I've heard about having kids is a lot of people think of it as, I want to have a little experience of all the things in life and then I'll move on to have kids because that'll just consume everything. But what I sort of heard from parents who you know, had a few kids or the kids are a bit older now, they say, yes, but having the kids also makes you grow in other ways. And so when you're in like your 20s, like traveling the world or picking up all these hobbies and not having kids, you could also say, well, if you're in your 20s and raising kids, they're just going to make you grow and give you new experiences in new ways that you wouldn't have had. So it's not like a trade-off between experiencing the world and growing versus having kids. Like they're just different types of development that you'll go on. Totally. Yep. I read a very depressing article about putting kids off till later. It's not like it's not like you get more experience. It's just at a different time. Yeah. yeah. I will link that in the show notes, but I may not read it again because it would it may be quite yeah. hard to me. Something I, I was doing in my youth that I didn't realize like I was doing, like a trade-off I was making, is that I was doing more hobby things like taking up rock climbing and learning French after work and just sort of like working late at my career and not really settling down and trying to like start a family or anything or like trying to find a, a home to own so that would then be like some financial security to start having a home. I'm just like, oh, I'll probably just rent for ages. And I think a lot of it was informed by the fact that when I was in my 20s, all of my, both my parents were alive, none of my grandparents had died. But then when I was around 29 to 31, like I lost both my grandmothers and then my father died um, two years ago. And then it sort of made me realize life is really finite. And even if I do have time to still settle down and have a family, I've now already made the choice without realizing it that you know my kids will never know their grandfather, for instance. Like there's a choice I made without realizing it. And it wasn't until it was gone that I realized what sure. happened. So that's just an instance of how 
experience sort of makes you aware of the trade-offs that you're making and you know once you have that experience you definitely choose differently yeah and and at least be more thoughtful about the yeah, choices you'd make just you would be hope. deliberative that's the key lesson yeah and if i and since we're talking about all this like high falutin stuff i will make another call out to something i'll get chris to put in the show notes a blog post by mark andreessen called life is short which hit me particularly hard just as a parent because he talks about the experience of having kids and being like i only have eight magical Christmases with my kids because from the ages of four to like 10, and then I've got a bit of overlap between a couple of kids, those that's the limited set of magical Christmases I have is eight single magical Christmases. And actually grokking that made me realize, oh, I should be prioritizing how I spend my time. Yeah. Yeah. Had you ever yeah, had right. a blog, Wait But Why? And it's post about the tail end. Yeah. Yeah, same. Like, oh, yes. When you really yeah. think about it, there's only going to be like so many good like winters with snow that you'll have so you're and when you think about how old you are and how other things will come up like you're only really going to have maybe like three more snowy winters in your entire life and you might live to be 80 but you've only got three more to go so cherish them when you have them yeah make them count while we're on you know difficult talks i mean what really got me about that wait but why post you're referencing is like you have already spent the vast majority of days that you will ever spend with your parents because when you're a kid you live with them 365 days a year and now you see them what I now live in the same city with my parents at least, so I see them once a week, but prior to that I would see them maybe four times a year. So compared to spending 365 days a year with them, you are at the absolute tail end of the time that you can spend with your yeah. parents and you should really value that very, very highly. Yeah, just thinking about that. So, oh, all right, oh, we got to call this conversation at the end, but you know what, I can't help myself <laughs> because Chris and I both read The Anthropocene Reviewed very recently and there's this great quote in it about the fact that like, Think how many trees you will see in your life. What is it? 10,000, maybe 20,000? That's still a very finite number. 20,000 trees does not seem like enough in your life. And maybe next time you look at a tree, you will take the moment and be like, this is one of the 20,000 trees I get to see in my life and truly appreciate what it is. That's right. John Green has a way of appreciating the world. So the second piece of feedback I had for myself is much more lighthearted, which was simply anyone who listened to the previous episode would notice we actually used proper bleeps for the first time. And oh my (laughs) gosh, they make things sound so much more harsh than I thought. You know, the um, photos of South Park actually prefer it when you put the bleeps on because they think it's funnier and yeah, it makes it sound harsher. It uh, really accentuates the words being that are no longer there. Yeah, I mean, like, they weren't even that harsh of curses. It was just like so flippant. And then putting the bleep on, it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's why we had to title you the episode. have some like, suggestive adjectives or modifiers on either side of it, so just like in Arrested Development, where they say, all right, I don't want to see any bleep or bleep or finger bleep. And <laughs> so yes i'm glad that we got the episode title as we did it did soften it okie doke so over to cam and the discussion on well geez we've got a lot so much feedback we have a lot lead us on cam all right so should we do um thoughts on tricameralism well I mean, you can't have tricameralism without cam, so I will start with that one. We can't have tricameralism without cam. I feel like we just got our episode. <laughs> Maybe that's the chamber we didn't talk about, the cam chamber. No, um, that would be a terrible, almost random chamber. So the thing that kind of jumped out at me in the discussion about tricameralism is that it seemed to be exploring this tension between having a chamber that exists to protect sort of liberties and minority rights within a polity 
versus having a, a third chamber that almost acts as a bit of a, a circuit breaker if there's disagreement between the first two chambers. And like the author called this out and said, like, yes, we think of chambers as like being structured in such a way that we protect minority rights, but perhaps in some current jurisdictions around the world, there's too much like institutional incentives in the favour of gridlock. I mean, like a third chamber is that kind of circuit breaking mechanism. But then when the author like explored all the different options, yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird how some of them would lean more on the minority rights protecting side of the third chamber, whereas others lean more on the circuit breaking approach. So when they talked about um, how in Lebanon they have like allocated seats for religious groups, that's very much like a minority rights protecting kind of chamber, and you're trying to codify the chamber in a way that no religious group would have like a majority in its own right. So you need to build consensus between at least like one other major religious group to be able to do anything. And this is actually, like, it's a whole topic of research in political science called consociationalism, which is how you govern ethnically or religiously divided societies. Right. So, like, Lebanon is a key example. If you look at a map of, like, the religions of Lebanon, like, they're just so overlapping and intermingled. You can't just have, like, a federal structure where some states are, like, Christian states and some are Muslim states because they're just so intertwined. You can't demarcate them geographically. So, instead, you do it by sect at the parliament level, but then you also have consociationalism in, say, the Netherlands, where you have, like, Dutch Catholics, Dutch Protestants, Dutch Socialists, and Dutch non-aligned, and they would be, like, very vertically integrated, so they would have political parties that represent Catholics, Protestants, Socialists, there would be newspapers for them, and there'd be certain industries or businesses just for them, and the whole thing was called pillarization, because you had this vertical integration throughout the whole society, and so Dutch politics kind of developed around consociationalism, and how you can create consensus between the different groups so that it's not just gridlock all the time, but also in a way that you know two groups or three groups don't just gang up to pick on one of the minorities. So there's a whole like body of research there. It's interesting that like half of the tricranal legislatures that are discussed in the article they kind of come from consociationalism. So religion, ethnicity, they're like common sort of yep. grounds to have like an extra chamber, a parliament, or at least to structure the ones that you do have. How many other countries? So Lebanon's the famous one. Are there many others that you can tell me off the top of the head? So Northern Ireland and just Ireland as well is like the country that consociationalist scholars will look at. So there are like voting procedures in Northern Ireland where certain votes require not just a majority, but also a majority of each of the major sectarian groups. So every political party has to declare itself as being either unionist, which favours the United Kingdom, or nationalist, which is sort of favours the Republic of Ireland. And for certain wow. laws or ministers to be appointed, you have to have a majority within each of those groups as well. And I'm not sure how... There's also yeah, like right. a, a very small like neutral block that have to declare themselves as being not aligned. I'm not sure how they feature into it, but you can sort of codify these differences. And in some ways, that's what the article was getting at when it talked about having a chamber that was like exactly equal between Democrats and Republicans in the States. It's kind of proposing the Northern Ireland model as a third yep. chamber for the United States, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it almost feels like Republicans and Democrats in the United States are becoming pretty close to um, Northern Ireland unionists versus... C- Civil War. Yeah. Yep. I, I hope it doesn't come to that, but, I mean, every article I read about it certainly creates that impression. Well, yeah. Media is pretty good at sensationalising. Yeah. Makes good Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm not saying Makes I endorse the media narrative or reject it, but certainly the impression. So I wonder, like, one of the critiques of proportional representation in terms of, in general, in democracy versus 
uh, kind of just single vote district, exactly as they have it sort of set up in the US. By Karl Popper was saying, you know, having a real focus on an outcome that drives a two-party system, to have the ability to have that second party just kick out the other party entirely is a fundamental part of democracy's power. It's like acting as a limit on power, whereas if you go for proportional representation, as is commonly practiced in Europe, uh, you know, where you'll have multiple candidates within a single voting area, that diminishes that capacity to just kick out the ruling power by aligning a whole bunch of different factions within each other and coming up with like different alliances. Do you see any of that reflected in this consortium? Yeah, so like the Netherlands, I think, has proportional representation. And so not all consociational societies necessarily need to have like the Lebanese or the Northern Irish like explicit saying of like, yep, this is the allocation of seats to each group. Like you just have a PR election and it comes out in the wash. But then you might build in other aspects of the society. So you might give people like veto power over certain policies, even if they're just a minority in the parliament or you might have a ceremonial figurehead who can sort of like generally wouldn't get involved in legislation but if they feel like any of the two groups like ganging up on a smaller one the ceremonial figurehead might pull on some reserve powers to say hey stop that um and all right yeah do you think the queen could do that Um, to us here in australia i think in theory they could but um there's a lot of precedent that suggests that they wouldn't governor general on the other hand might Mm. Or maybe they, they would take a, a negative example from John Kerr and they wouldn't want to wade into that. I don't have an, an idea one way or the other. When's the last time the Governor-General did something? Was it the constitutional Was crisis? Was it 75? Yeah. Yeah. Is that the last time? It's first and only time in Federation, at least. Maybe in colonial times it was more common. Yeah. yeah first and only. There's a great ABC yeah, right. podcast um, about this. I think it's called The Dismissal. Or, no, The Eleventh. Because I think it was on November the 11th. Yeah, it's a very good podcast um, if you're interested in this, but I, I couldn't possibly improve on what the ABC has put into that podcast. Yeah. Cool. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> and I may listen to it. Yeah, I'm listening to it a lot these days, so I'm happy yeah. to get a record on that. Thank you. The only thing I was going to add on proportional representation and the sort of approach is that sometimes the PR can be enough to protect a minority in its own right, but sometimes it's not. So, like, two interesting examples are. One in Finland, where they have like proportional representation for I think it's a unicameral legislature, so they just have the one house. But there's a like a Swedish People's Party in Finland, because like the west of Finland, which sort of borders some Swedish islands, has a, a relatively large Swedish-speaking population, and they're like a minority within Finland, and they don't want their language to be infringed upon. And so there's a party in the parliament that represents Swedish speakers. And often they've been like the, the deciding vote in the middle of Finnish politics, so they can sort of leverage that that power. Oh, so wow. you don't need to like allocate them seats, but just the fact that they sit in the centre and they can be the kingmaker gives that minority the power to say, all right, well, we're not going to do anything that would infringe on our members' like minority rights. And the proportional representation system gives them that power to be able to do that. And you sometimes see a similar thing in like Romania, where there's actually a fairly large Hungarian-speaking minority in Transylvania. And often the Hungarian People's Party in Romania will also be like the kingmaker, like the Swedish People's Party. So unicameralism with PR can be a way of protecting minority rights, but you also then have policies like, say, in Turkey, which has, like, quasi-PR, and I don't think any government has ever, like, partnered with Kurdish parties, and they've just sort of said, no, we don't care if they're going to be the kingmaker or not, we're just not going to partner with them. So in some ways that's a negative example of how PR does not protect certain minorities depending on how the other parties respond to them. Wow. Yeah, right. But um, I do take your point about Karl Popper saying a 
a key feature of democracy is not, you know, will the best party win or the most representative party win, but can we get rid of a bad government without recourse to violence? And that's sort of why he prefers the more geographic-based, sort of more Westminster style of democracies. And he sort of doesn't like PR because you're not really holding individual members accountable, you're just holding a party accountable. And then if an individual member is like underperforming, it's the party that censures them, not the voters, by throwing them out. I think it's a good theory, but in mm. practice, like in Australia, we have geographic constituencies, and I think most people just vote for the party anyway. And in some like rare cases, like you know, Tony Abbott's electorate, we're not particularly pleased with him specifically, and so they did not return him. But in general... Yeah. I feel like John Howard lost his seat during the election that he lost yes. as well, right? I mean, you lived in Wodonga for a bit. We all hated uh, Sophie Mirabella and went independent. Uh, yeah, so Sophie you... Mirabella, uniquely unpopular party member and was parachuted into a safe seat sort of thing. So she was just a party member, had no relation to the electorate that she represented and was deeply unpopular within her party, outside her party, with everyone. And then eventually the electorate, which was a very, very safe liberal seat, uh, voted for a independent because they just hated their... Yeah. So there are some wisdom links to what Pop is saying. Like in general, people will just vote for whichever candidate is in their party. But sometimes people do throw out candidates that they don't agree with. Hey, I'm so glad we've got you on, Cam, because I've had like <laughs> an article about Karl Popper's view on democracy ah. in our like ideas for future shows for a very long time. So now I can just cross that one off. Right. Well, hmm. and um, the, the thing is oh. that I think I, I said in over like Facebook, I had an idea for an alternative tricameral chamber. And my idea actually kind of builds off Popper's thoughts around having like accountability between mm. the voters, but you know you maybe want representation as well. So my idea is you have a third chamber where you allocate say a hundred seats, and then people vote for particular seats just based on a random allocation. So if you like introduce this chamber, the ABS or the Australian Electoral Commission will just run a random number generator and say like you know you Brian you're going to vote for whoever's representing the seventh seat. Chris, you're going to vote for whoever's voting for the 50th seat. You know, Cam, you'll vote for the 99th seat. And so it's just randomly sampled across all of Australia. So there's no, like, geographic basis for the electorates. There should be a roughly even spread across the whole country. But depending on how many seats you have in the parliament, you might have some, like, tail seats where just by pure luck of the draw, you do get, like, a larger share of Queenslanders in one seat or you get a larger share of left-wing or right-wing voters. But the parties would generally need a tack to the centre because you'd expect through like the law of large numbers for most seats to basically be centred around the median or the, the mean of Australian political views. So there's like a strong incentive to move towards the centre with like a few, depending on how many seats you have in the chamber, there would still be like a few sort of, you would consider like extreme parties. And so this way you have like a nationally representative electorate and it considers like national issues as a whole rather than how they affect a particular local area but you maintain that accountability between an individual member and their nominated constituents. And would the electorates change every election or would it be constant throughout? I thought about this and I I kind of worry that if you re-randomised every election, it would sort of like disincentivise people for even wanting to stand for the election because they're like, I might just get unlucky. And like I represented a centre-right electorate next time or represent a centre-left one. There's like, no way I'm going to win. So why would I even invest in like representing my constituents if they're not even going to be around next time? And also I was just worried that yep. if you have like one big randomisation event, maybe that's it's easy to like gain that or have some sort of institutional breakdown. So like if the parties don't like how the random number generator allocates voters, they would say, oh, it's biased, you know, we've 
it's come out with like a rightward or a leftward slant, the ABS needs to look into its methodology. Whereas if you're doing it like incrementally, where it's like someone dies or leaves the country, and then someone turns 18, so they have to get allocated to one of the random electorates, because it's just happening in the background one at a time, it's, it's not as big of a thing. And then also like members can feel like they can, they know if their electorate is gradually shifting under them because you're only like adding and subtracting a few people at any one time. And that lets the members sort of say, oh, you know, I might want to like moderate my view on this because my electorate is changing. Whereas if you do it like all at once, it's kind of hard for them to decide how they want to play it. So I think it'd be a bit more of a stable system if it was just evolving over time. Yeah, I think that it also further encouraged that tie between the electorate itself and exactly. the representative. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Because when you were first describing it, I was like, this sounds like it is either a recipe for complete party control <laughs> or it's the, the, a yep. recipe for a chamber of parliament that is dominated by celebrities. Yeah, that's because right. Yeah. That way, you know, you have the broadest appeal to anyone across mm. a particular area of the that's country. But uh, yeah, yeah, if you're kind of like, you just get allocated a if random you're representing electorate. representing the same people each time. I mean, you do it on birth date or something would be a simple way to randomly allocate. Birth date or when you get a tax file number or when yeah. you actually join the electoral roll, right? Yeah. And then I also worried, like, how you do the random allocation. You've got to do it in a way that it wouldn't, like, create incentives to then manipulate the thing it's based on. So it was, like, tax file number. Does that create incentive to, like, lean on the ATO to allocate tax file numbers in a certain way? Because if it's, like... Yeah. If it's like yep. The last two digits of your tax file number, then they'll say, "Ah, oh, well, the last two digits that'll need to be re-looked at in future." So something like your birthday, it may not be random. Like, are you seeing a lot of induced pregnancies if it's a birthday? <laughs> yeah, no that, son of mine is going to be a fifth of July, or I tell you exactly. what. Exactly. So, like, if you had, like, I reckon, if you had like a really hyper-accurate like birth certificate register where it records like the millisecond you were born on, and you can then just like Ooh. plug that into like a random number generator or like it, it extrapolates that out hash it yep. yep you hash it but then you know does it create an incentive to game the, the millisecond when it was recorded they say oh you know they, <laughs> they, the baby was given to their parents in their arms that's the delivery like no it's when the umbilical cord was cut that's the millisecond <laughs> Sorry, you just got uh, me like actually good. looking up the distribution of birthdays in Australia because surely there's got to be like some season yes. variation or something like that. Just I mean, really. there's definitely like more in September. September 17th is the most <laughs> common birthday. And there is data that um, women are less likely to give birth on Halloween and more likely to give birth on Valentine's Day. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's right. Oh, there you go. Exactly as you would expect, December 25th is the <laughs> least likely Really? Birthday. Yeah, sure. Even though, on Christmas. arguably, the most famous birthday in the Western world. Well, Indeed. Yeah. So, and I thought, just having like a random chamber like this, um, and if it can evolve over time, there's also no incentive for members to not be too extreme because they realise that if they are in an extreme electorate, then just by like attrition, it's more likely that their electorate is going to move to the centre. So they don't want to go like too, too far out on a limb because then they might alienate their future voters who are going to get added over time. But then this could just be a recipe for a really bland chamber. Are we too conservative? Do we want some extreme? That's, yeah, I was going to say, isn't that something Charles brought up about Europe lately? In that um, the extreme ideas that you get in American politics never ever get discussed in Europe. So if there were any good ideas that were extreme, they'd just never come up because everyone's so moderate. If you wanted some extreme ideas, you would just increase the number of seats so that, like, as the, the sample size for each election uh, gets smaller, it's more likely to have like a wide distribution. Whereas, like, hypothetically, if you had like one seat in this chamber. That that member is just going to represent the median, like the mean, 
Whereas if you like a thousand, you will definitely get a lot of fringe parties in there. Interesting. Yeah, there it depends go. what you think those parties are meant to do, whether they're meant to discuss or purely just play. Yeah, it is an interesting debate. Hmm. Yeah. I do like that though. I like, I'm just trying to think there do not seem to be many polities that are divorced from geography, that are, at least in Western countries. I'm trying to think certainly UK, Australia and US, which would be the ones I'm most familiar with, are all geographically based. And I'm, it, it is interesting me, to me now that you mention it, that there is no pure, full Australia house. Yeah, just the States. I know that, so Israel, I think, is PR, and the whole nation is considered one big electorate. Uh, I think the Nordics mm-hmm. might be unicameral national elections, like they have local governments that you would also have elections for, but I think their, like their national parliament doesn't have any geographic markings whatsoever. Um, trying to think of any others i'm sure there are i'm sure there are other ones how fascinating yeah probably I mean, north korea or something so well fun um tangent when you talk about sort of like parliaments in places like north korea or china it is interesting to look at the different layouts of parliaments so like in westminster system it tends to be like a horseshoe so that you have like a cross bench who are sitting between the two parties but then the main parties who sit opposite each other can like debate and yell at each other because the debates are much more raucous whereas in unicameral parliaments or PR parliaments where it's a bit more consensus building coalition building to get things done rather than like shouting down your opponent it's more like a semicircle so no one's ever facing opposite someone to shout at them and it's more like we'll invite you down to the rostrum to give a speech to the whole parliament and then you look at places like China which has like I think it has like a national assembly it just has no sort of real power and it's like a classroom where there's all in rows facing the front and it's for like the premier to get up and say, this is what you're going to vote on now. Uh, so they just like take instructions. Huh. So it's built into the layout of the parliament itself. Wow. That feels like something that 99% Invisible needs to do an episode on. Yes. And there is a, I think there's a, a provincial government in Canada or a territorial government in Canada. It might be Yukon, where it's like the population is primarily indigenous Canadians. And their parliament is actually a circle because it's all about sitting around the circle together. Everyone is sort of equal, like Knights of the Round Table style. Cool. It's just about consensus building. I don't even remember what our topic is, but this has been fascinating. So this was tricameral. Okay, so <laughs> I, it was, I, I could give you like two other interesting little factors on tricameralism, but I feel like we've talked about it a lot. Okay, Chris is champing at the bit. I really so am. we got to kick this one off. So several weeks ago, I sent Chris an article by Applied Divinity Studies on You Should Become a Billionaire. And he has been just in love with this article, as well as like going down the whole rabbit hole of Applied Divinity Studies ever since then. So, you know, we're, we're going to be discussing that article today. And given your passion, Chris, I'm going to hand it over to you to give the overview and, you know, take the listeners along Absolutely. for Absolutely. So, the, the article is literally entitled Life Advice, Become a Billionaire. If you sort of listen to the modern popular culture, particularly the New York Times, billionaires are these, you know, oligarchs who control politics, they control the world, they control our social state, they have nearly unlimited power. And you can, you know, usually this is put in the sense of like, and the government should curtail that power and why isn't there nothing that can be done and we need a Marxist revolution or whatever we're advocating. But read in a Straussian fashion, it's like, wouldn't you want that power? Shouldn't you want that for yourself? Why don't you try to become one of these billionaires? <laughs> and like... I guess I just never thought of it. And he sort of lays out, I assume it's a he, I actually don't know anything about applied divinity studies. Is becoming a billionaire worth it? Like, it lays out, there's a classic, I think it was a Kahneman study, which says that happiness tops out an income of about 70,000 US dollars per year, which seems to get widely debunked nowadays, but it was very popular in happiness research 
go back 10 years, 20 years maybe. And he sort of says, you know, this is another one of these debunkings, and he sort of says, happiness seems to increase by 0.45 points on a 10-point scale for every doubling of income. So it it really tails off. So the happiness you get increasing your income from 70,000 to 140,000 is the same happiness increase that you get increasing your income from 140,000 to 280,000, which is presumably decently harder. But if you take those numbers seriously and you just naively extrapolate, if you were to be, get a billion dollars of income a year, which is roughly, I guess, what Jeff Bezos is at, probably he's even richer than that, then you would be at about 13.5 out of 10 on a happiness point scale. That's incoherent. That literally doesn't make any sense. But the point remains, that's pretty happy. Yes, like the insights there. First of all, amazing work of the word Straussian there, Chris, like 100%. <laughs> A plus marks on Thank taking you. the Straussian reading of the New York Times. I had to impress Cam. He's so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like hmm, getting to a 13 out of 10 on the happiness scale, this is like elder gods level of happiness. You cannot even fathom it. It will drive you insane trying to stare into the eyes of Jeff Bezos. That's so happy. I'm a pretty happy guy, but I would not describe Sometimes myself you can as... be too happy, you know? Can you? I don't know. I mean, no, what no, about really. it's, a uni, it's a unipolar scale. <laughs> <laughs> so, amazing article. I, it almost like tries to play it in a Straussian fashion as well. Like it's, it doesn't come out and explicitly say, hey, you Marxists are all just telling me that being a billionaire would be amazing and all that kind of thing. Like it just says, here's your argument against being a billionaire. Here's me just rapidly debunking it. Here's me saying, no, you know what? If you had that power, if you had all that wealth, you could still just save 250,000 lives according to GiveWell over in Africa if you were just willing to give it up anyway. Like, you can still create all that value for the world and give your wealth away and have yeah, a double Yeah, for bang. sure. So it does what say, is you wrong know, with you? You don't have to get 13.45 out of 10 on the happiness scale. That's actually a pretty bad return for your last half of a billion dollars to increase from 13 to 13.45. For half a billion dollars, you could save something like 20,000 lives. Or maybe it's that is what makes them happy because there's so much research that give well and 80,000 hours have put out to say that people who give like True. a certain percentage of their income to charity every month are like happier than people who don't. So maybe the correlation is picking up on exactly but that behavior. That is an interesting insight. It is. I wonder if many of the billionaires give away so much. Yeah. And I wonder how much that plays into like the United States of America has one of the highest percentage of their general population giving away their income, like donating income to charity. And they seem like a relatively happy bunch. Mm politics notwithstanding i wonder if that plays a role in like their general happiness levels in contrast to others as well that's a weird one because it might be confounded by how americans are more religious so maybe it's picking up on church tithes as donations and yeah like, there is pretty yes. good research i think that more religious people are more likely to donate to charities but then are religious people also more likely if by virtue of their religiosity to think their life is more meaningful and be more satisfied Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of correlations between religion and happiness. This is like one of my key like questions reading the article. It's like which which way does the causation go here? Like, what's our theory of change? Because I also thought, could it be that the happiness is driving the wealth? Because I think it was a few weeks ago we talked about Julie Galef's book and how she was talking about the difference between like yes. social confidence and epistemic confidence, and how Jeff Bezos would say at the start of his career, look, it's only like a thirty percent chance that Amazon's going to succeed. And people would say, that's a pretty low chance. But the way he communicated it was very confident. It was like, I can say it's 30%. I'm like, well, this guy seems pretty firm about that 30%. So he probably knows what he's talking about. And I kind of wondered if, like, the happiness and that social confidence are, like, coming from the same place. So 
if you are like happy and self-assured, sure. then you're more socially confident, which then helps you give convincing presentations to potential investors, which leads to you being a more successful billionaire. It, yeah. Perhaps at the billionaire level, I believe like from reading this original study or Kahneman's reflections on it, it might have been a longitudinal study. I definitely remember him actually addressing the causative effects there. So yeah, I'm still not going to dismiss that that doesn't play a, a role in it though. Like those, there's going to yeah. be naturally people who gravitate yeah. to those kinds of And so of then the, the second half of this article and the follow-up, I guess, is that maybe being a billionaire is not as hard as you think. Like naively, you can say there's like 100 billionaires, so you've got a one in 100 million chance of being one or something, but they do seem pretty concentrated in tech and out of Y Combinator and a startup accelerator specifically. And so if, uh, you know, a simple, a simple heuristic in order to optimize your life is one, try very hard to get into Y Combinator and two, conditional on acceptance, try very, very hard to become a billionaire. And like your odds are probably way better than you think. Like not good, but maybe one in a hundred if you were to actually try. Like not many people actually even try to become a billionaire. I have not actually tried. Have you, have tried, you tried trying? trying? <laughs> Sorry, I, I call that out because that was like one of the pieces of advice I gave Chris back when we were doing like weight training together. It, it was like the key insight was like, have you actually tried trying? If you're failing right now or you think you're failing, maybe try a little harder. Are you failing because you're not sometimes really trying? Not every time, but sometimes it worked. Sometimes trying, trying would help. Yeah, and that the costs of trying to become a billionaire are maybe not as hard as you think. If you can earn $100,000 salary, just to pick a rough number of an intelligent person in the modern Western world, probably many of our listeners, and you give up one year to pitch VCs rather than working your job, so your career is 40 years long, you've given up one fortieth of your lifetime earnings. So that's not actually that big a cost to at least try to become a billionaire, and the payoff is enormous. It's a yeah. billion dollars. It's... um. Just to expand on that, it's like the Taleb sort of investment strategy where you want like a lot of sort of like bonds and safe assets just to like protect a core of wealth and then put everything in like high perspective, like leveraged Bitcoin investments because if they pay off, they'll pay off like billionaire good and you want to get exposed to a lot of that like upside asymmetric volatility. So this is almost like a career version of that where it's like work for a little while, have a steady income, but then use those savings to take a year off, try and become a billionaire, same sort of approach in your life. Sure, and if it doesn't work, the losses are capped. See, the funny thing there is like you called out Talib and my initial thought when reading all the like background and the calculations on this is, this is a perfect example of Talib and the black swan. Like it's a complete, <laughs> like trying to extrapolate the sample of this, like by enticing new people to try to become a billionaire, you're going to get out of sample yes. projections yes. and it's completely I, not I did applicable. wonder like, because you were saying like conditional on wanting to become a billionaire, I'm like yeah, but you're encouraging people who don't want to become billionaires to become billionaires, but just that doesn't mean you're going to have the same base rate of success. Like hypothetically, you could ship in like some people who hate money or something, they're not going to have the same base rate as your sample of becoming a millionaire because they're fundamentally different kind of people. Yeah, so... I don't know, he does call out base rates in an appendix yeah. somewhere, but like it just seemed like reading all the like analysis of, you know what, your actual chances yeah. of becoming a billionaire are much higher than you think. I'm like, a this is effect. such an out of yeah. sample black swan exactly. thing. <laughs> but then I didn't want to lean too heavily but, on that yes. because I, I like the broader point of the article, which is that there are like biases that pull us back from being a bit more ambitious. So like we discount like our future gains and like being a billionaire, like taking a risk now is like, the future wealth of being a billionaire versus the current wealth of just having a steady job and we overly discount that future wealth and then oh, like what's the, the thing was it um hank green or something or someone saying like you have a choice between two life options go with like the harder one 
because you would sort of talk yourself out of it, but it's generally more rewarding. Okay, that sounds familiar. Like, it sounds very similar to um, Steve Levitt in terms of, like, just choose the option that'll be the most drastic. Yes, that's the one. What this reminds me of is a tweet I sent Chris this week, which is like, which life would you prefer? The life you actually prefer or your current life? (laughs) 40% of people choose my current life. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That was a whole series of like, would you prefer to live the life of a billionaire or your current life? Would you prefer to live the life of a true philosopher, however you would like to define that, or your current life? And there are a variety of things about that. And a lot of people choose their current life. So yeah, it culminated in a tweet of, yeah, would you prefer to live the life you would prefer to live or your current life? So maybe the Straussian reading of this is that they're just trying to find those people who would be like open to trying to become a billionaire, but they did like a bit of a nudge to go from safe and secure career to more like equity financed billionaire adjusted career and even though they're like fundamentally different people than people who are currently trying to become billionaires so their base rate won't be identical they would still have a better chance than they assess at becoming a billionaire and all things being equal we should try and have like more people being a bit more ambitious and it's good for society positive spillovers so what this article is saying it's not literally about the base rates and everything is just trying to nudge a few fence sitters to have a go at being a billionaire. 100%. It's like it's working on the margins. And that was the thing that I took from it as well. It's like the kind of people who read applied divinity studies are probably going to be pretty switched on, right? <laughs> You're probably going to yes, have a much better sample right. pool for the people who actually get even just linked this article. Uh, to have potential success at becoming a billionaire. You, dear listeners, we're talking to you. <laughs> I want you to try to become a billionaire and then join our Patreon. We still have the you know the million-dollar Patreon subscriber option, so that's the long-term financial viability play. I think we do. We just need to find 1,000 listeners. <laughs> now, if on this podcast you decide to become a billionaire and you become in YC and you work really hard and you become a billionaire, I want you to remember this podcast and support us at that level, please. <laughs> I'm talking to you right now. (laughs) Especially you, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) Nice call. So the other thing that this made me think of was going back to predominantly our conversations on Bitcoin and, you know, me throwing out a few of the ideas I had back in the early crypto days of like potential, you know, multi-million ideas. And if I'd been a bit more ambitious or if I lived in the culture of Silicon Valley, you know, you could tap into YC. And I don't know how I feel in general in life these days. Like when I was in a business strategy role, I felt like those kind of ideas came to me a lot more easily than when I was in a senior kind of operations leadership role. And perhaps part of getting to this stage of, you know, having the potential to become a billionaire, you need to get to those kind of more open breadth roles first rather than just getting caught in the details. And that might be a step that is missing in opening people's mind is getting them to uh, first go to a job that has that kind of blue sky thinking and opens your options to coming up with creative new ideas. And I think in the follow-up to this, he talks a lot about amount of unicorns that have come out of Google employees originally. Yeah. And that reinforced my gut instinct on this is like a great stepping stone to becoming a billionaire or founding a company that is worth over a billion dollars is 
being in that kind of career track that encourages creative thinking. And maybe this is exactly who he's talking to, to say you don't have to work every single one of your 40 years of your career for $200,000 or $400,000 a year or whatever Google's starting salaries for grads are nowadays. You can take one year off to pitch a few VCs and if it looks like it's going well, then you know the one year off, maybe that goes well, maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, you go back to your $400,000 year job. If it goes well, then you feel like you've got much better chance of being a billionaire by spending another two years really, really working hard on your startup. So are you feeling locked in yet, Cam, or what? No, not locked in. There was one thing I wanted to push back on, which I feel is kind of redolent because like, I think the Strassi intake is correct. This is more just about encouraging more people to try to be billionaires. But I did want to quibble with the, sort of the argument for why this is a little bit, which is just that I wondered what it would look like if you mapped like, a high value of anything else versus life satisfaction and well-being. And I was thinking, what if you just said like, people who are very physically active tend to be happier and have higher life satisfaction as well and so I just kind of wondered if it's more getting this thing like just pushing yourself to be at the high end of any sort of worthwhile endeavor tends to bring more life satisfaction and well-being and when you think about like the career trajectory of a lot of like AFL players for instance they have like a great few years in their 20s may retire in their 30s and so many of them go on to like create foundations for something that was like near and dear to their heart like they've talked about mental health while they're on the team or like a cancer foundation or something and that's like taking all the connections and the social capital and like some are paid quite a bit and then you're turning it into a more fulfilling life satisfying thing later on because you were at like the peak end of physical performance for instance so i just wonder if you could pick like other things that aren't tech entrepreneurship and just sort of say look try to become the best at that subsection and your life satisfaction will improve and it may lead to like interesting options later in life. That would be a really interesting study. I wonder what the study of top athletes and, I don't know, top media personalities or yeah. top religious monks. I don't know. I'm trying to think what aspects you could you could pull that along, but that would be fascinating to see whether those people are as fulfilled as billionaires. Applied divinity studies is for, like, tech readers. I wonder if there's, like, an applied divinity studies for, like, sports fans. And they have, like, the same one saying, you should try to be an Olympic athlete. You know, like most of you, you're just trying to be like captain of the local footy team, but you should set your sights high. You should try to be an athlete in whatever it is. And like, sure, you're doing AFL and that's not in the Olympics, but you can retrain as like a soccer player and they are in the Olympics. And so you should push yourself to be at like world level and then just look at this graph of life satisfaction. You'll be so much happier compared to people who didn't even make it to the Olympics. And if you get a gold medal, you'd be even happier than that. Yeah. So I do wonder if it's just like pushing yourself to be like the best of any particular you know, area of striving and excellence. Yeah, maybe there's a with... confounding well, factor. Yeah, I don't want to say it's like a reason against the article. It's more that tech entrepreneurship could be like a really cool thing to do. But I think it goes to more point that people should just be more ambitious in general. People should try and strive further and higher and realize that even if you don't get there, you'll get further than you would have if you hadn't even tried. Is yeah. the better thing though that like in working on economic output and focusing on billionaires, it's not a zero-sum game? Whereas in general, sporting mm. is almost definitively a zero-sum game. Yes, that's true. So if you weren't the Olympic athlete, someone else would have. Someone's going to win the gold each mm. year. Yes, if it's not you, that it is someone else. That's Whereas, true. you know, the billion-dollar company that you could found may never get founded without you. You can only, like, sidestep it a little bit by saying, ah, uh, but the other athlete may not have broken a world record like you had yeah. and, like, demonstrated the peak of human performance. But then that's a kicks the can down the road to the next Olympics where someone else would have broken the world record. 
I'm also not going to like just call myself out here so I don't have to do it in the follow-up. Like, it's entirely possible you could become a billionaire playing in a zero-sum game, right? But it's just yes. generally yes. our economic yes. system is set up to encourage positive sums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, I have to ask the most obvious question, which is like we've, we've all read this article several times in preparation for this, and I talk about it incessantly, probably annoyingly, <laughs> if you're Brian, because I mostly talk to Brian about these things. But like, are either of you going to try to become a billionaire now? No. <laughs> Not no. right now. Like, and to be honest, I, I think I need to get back into one of those open mind, creative kind of jobs. And the main impediment to me becoming a billionaire or pursuing this kind of thing is having the passion behind an idea that would drive that kind of outcome. And yeah. in light of that, I don't know, maybe I'd be more likely to take a step towards a career that will enable me to have those kind of ideas again. But I'm not shooting for billionaire right now. Well, he does. He brings up um, Steve Jobs, who six months before he was starting Apple was going on pilgrimages to India and like really just made this computer business to make some money on the side. So possibly he wasn't like super passionate about it. He was just doing it for the money in the start with, and he became a multi-billionaire by the end of his life, right? So you don't need the perfect passionate idea. Like, have you even tried trying yet? <laughs> don't wait for inspiration to strike. Just get to work. Yeah, uh, there was actually an interesting thing in... Uh what was it, people I mostly admire today, interview with Michael Sandel and Michael Sandel was covering off this study on creative ideas and everyone thinks that like they just get drilled to come up with 10 creative ideas and then after the first 10, they kind of tap out and they get forced to do another and the next 10 are equally as good and there is surprisingly little diminishing returns when coming up with creativity. Yeah, I listened to that only the other day and yeah, that was a very interesting uh, insight into creativity. A few years ago, there was a David Bowie exhibit at, I think it was the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and what jumped out at me the most is they played like a little documentary clip of him in the 90s, this is like, David Bowie was like performing just amazingly well in every decade of his career, but you'd think of the, the 70s as like the high watermark. Um, I'm sure there are some Bowie fans out there who are going to correct me and say, oh no, the 80s had this album. <laughs> uh, and I love David Bowie, and I was just amazed at this clip of him in the 90s where computers were like starting to be a thing and he got a friend of his who was a computer scientist to like write this program where it would like pick five words from an English dictionary at random and then Bowie had to like turn those five words into a narrative somehow and so he'd like gone out and like found like someone at the cutting edge of technology to write something bespoke for him as a tool to keep stimulating his creativity and he sort of saw it as something he had to keep working at and it sort of sounds like you know, people think I tap out at 10 creative ideas, or maybe an artist thinks I'll tap out at 10 albums. But I was like, no, if I just keep training and working at this, I can keep creating new and exciting things. Mm. And cool. And he, and he yeah, did. for sure. And now you've entirely made me think of a, like another complete section <laughs> that you could be having positive sum games in, which is in the world of art generally, right? Ha! Whether it's music, whether it's making podcasts, whether it's making YouTube videos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. While there is, at the end of the day, a kind of zero-sum competition for people consuming that and spending their time, in general, the creation of art is positive sum. And like being able to bounce ideas off other people, perhaps we should be equally inspiring more people to produce art. Yeah, yep. I mean, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And Cam, don't think you're getting off the hook. Are you trying to become a billionaire now? You've read this article as much as Brian <laughs> Would, would, or would, 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 uh, has it made any change in your life that you would think of, that would be more directing you to be more ambitious or actually trying to become a billionaire? The, it, it did prompt me to think more about just how to better my finances in general. I don't think it's going to prompt a career break because 
move. It's like a sunk cost effect, but I actually took a bit of a hit to my career to transition into where I am at the moment because I liked the subject matter. And so I feel like to move out of it like would help me make more money, but it, maybe it's the sunk cost of like having moved into this area and starting to specialise. I don't want to move out. But there are certainly ways, like if I was to find some way of like founding a, a consultancy or something, that would probably get me like closer to the billionaire approach, even if it's not like tech entrepreneur approach. Yep. Like I, I think like consulting... Managing directors and partners, like, they make very good money, but they're not billionaires like the article is talking about. So it did make me think about that. But the more, I guess, likely thing that I'll do is just thinking about my finance more generally. It made me think, should I just take my investment strategy more seriously to try and, you know, become at least a two-time or three-time millionaire so I can have, like, a house and, you know, some nice holidays every year or something? So it has prompted me to think more deeply about that. And I think that will lead to some small changes. And since you've been the person throwing the questions, Chris, what about you? I mean, you're actually in tech. You have the most pressure well, on you. Yeah. I genuinely do. And it did make me reflect. Like, I know all the founders of my company who are all multi-multi-millionaires, I believe. You know, multi-millionaires on the back of this. And what, a couple of the founders are younger than me. And they seem great. They seem bright. But they seem like the bright guy at uni. They don't seem like absolute visionary, you know, hang on their every word kind of guys. And maybe they listen to this. So I don't I don't mean that they're unimpressive. They're quite impressive, but they're not supremely impressive. So it does make me think that, you know, possibly it is something that I'm capable of. But uh, no, is that the honest and quick answer? No, I'm not going to try to become a billionaire. But yeah, I don't know. I worry about the unstructured work. I wonder that maybe that's one of the key features in being a billionaire is like, I'm pretty good at my job. Like I'm very good at my job because someone gives me a task and then I do that task very effectively and I can come up with tasks around that task of what we maybe should do and direct things. But the idea of just taking a year off and pitching VCs for something and like having to work out which VCs to pitch and when to work on the business and when to build the marketing strategy and when to build the operational strategy, that all feels very unstructured and messy and difficult. And I worry that I would not enjoy it, nor would I be very good at it. So I'm sort of just sticking with comfort. And and also, it would be fair to say that I'm just looking for a lot of comfort in my life right now. I've had a very, very stressful two years. And I think I've earned some comfort and I've got a lot of it. So that is, I'm just enjoying, enjoying the hell out of it, to be perfectly honest. I sometimes feel guilty about how happy I am, but happy I am and I'm loving it right now. So could I see myself in the future? Honestly, maybe. Like, you know, I'm thinking about, maybe moving overseas in a few years' time and we'll just see how that all plays out. But maybe that would be a career break for me sufficient that I would take some time out to try to start a company. Like, I am pretty bright. I've got some good ideas. I've got some incredibly smart contacts, some in Singapore. So possibly I would be able to put together something like this and it would be really interesting to actually try. All right. All right. Is it? Coffee bed time. time. It's coffee bed time. Oh, there we go. Oh, it's just delayed. I could see your mouth opening, but no sound coming out. I'm like, listeners, Cam is pretending to sing on camera, but you can't hear him. <laughs> it's like those Olympic athletes that just mouth the national anthem. Yeah, yeah. Or everyone sitting in the Raiders stadium. <laughs> That's the words? No idea. Now, Cam, I did ask you if you could come up with a coffee bet, which I'm hoping you did. Otherwise, I've got to go around and soak it through. Oh, the only bet that I could think of is obviously making it about myself. When is travel going to open between Singapore and Australia? Ooh, when is travel? Because this has been threatened mm. twice. Yeah. Who, who's in the bet? Yeah. I'm going to have to say Brian and I are going to be the bet because if the answer is never, then we could never, ever claim our coffee. <laughs> so it needs to be like a statute of limitations. No, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it'll just be before X date and then the after yeah. is forever, basically. Travel between Singapore and Australia. How is Singapore? What's the state in Singapore? You're in lockdown again? We maybe? are. We're, I think, looking at 
lightning restrictions around the, I think it's the 16th or the 18th of August, but at the moment it's very, very strong default, work from home, no sit-down dining, a lot of things like gyms and are closed. I think cinemas are open, but they're at like very reduced capacity, so we're in a, a bit of a rolling, ongoing lockdown at the moment. Yeah, right. And so um, what's the vaccination status in Singapore? I think we're, uh, we're around 50% fully vaccinated at the moment, and the government's talked a lot about when we get to like 80%, a lot of things might open up. And they're already like laying the groundwork for people who are vaccinated can do things that people who are not vaccinated will be able to do. So I think like last week I talked about, oh, it'll probably be easier for you to travel overseas if you've got a vaccine versus not. So yeah, that's sort of... Yeah, Australia is doing something similar, but the 80% target feels a long way off in Australia. Yeah, I think it's like 10% fully vaccinated at the moment. Uh, it might be just shy of 20. I think okay. on July the 16th, it was like 12% and we've just been ramping up. <sighs> catching up on those second vaccines right now but yeah we're we're not in a great position and yeah sydney's not having a great time with a big outbreak of delta but you know the rest of australia's going all right i'm happy here in vicky that's for sure for the first time in a year but anyway it's seeming more and more likely i'm going to get a coffee off chris from our vaccination bet earlier in the series well, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna open it. If we're 80 percent is where our prime minister is saying that a lot of things start opening up. COVID live currently tell me that happens at the 4th of January, so that's where I'm gonna open the bet, Brian. Singapore travel between Singapore and Australia will be open and free for vaccinated individuals by the 4th of January 2022. Can I just like map this out and make sure higher or lower? This would be anywhere in Australia. So if you wanted to go to Sydney, if you wanted to go to Perth, if you wanted to go to Melbourne. Yes, as long as you you yourself are vaccinated. So we would not take in, I expect, unvaccinated people. I like WA is going to be the spanner in that work. Yeah, this is a tough one. But I, yeah. mm, I mean, it's an opening position. You can push me higher or lower. Okay. Regardless, I think it's going to be higher. So later. Do you yeah. think after the 4th of January, yeah. later than the 4th of January? Okay. Yep. Um, even if we just restricted ourselves to the eastern states <laughs> to yep. make it yep. easier and not have the spanner in the works of potential secessionism and whatnot. Yes. Yep. Uh, after March 31st? March 31st. 2022. Mm. I want to explore the, end the free travel a little more. So is this like you don't need to get a special exemption from Border Force to be able to enter I think purely some evidence of vaccination is, like... is what I'm, I'm expecting would count as open borders because I think it'll be, it's hard to predict how long it'll take before we won't demand that. I think so. Anyone who's vaccinated doesn't need to do any special pleading. You can just apply for a visa as normal. Uh, right. So should we say? Should we actually make it? You don't need to do quarantine because you yes, might still need yeah, to lodge some like, to do paperwork to get into the country. But if they say walk off the plane and you don't need to stay in a particular location for more than twenty-four hours, then that's like quarantine. That's free. That's quarantine free. Yeah, that sounds that sounds what I'm picturing. March 31st. Yeah. It's depressing that that's so far away and also seems too short. Yeah. Um, I, I, I could still take the low side. If you want to stick to your guns there, Brian, I could say Q1 next year. It's possible. It doesn't seem impossible to me. I don't know whether it seems 50% likely. Yeah, no, I think I'm still going to take the high side. Like the thing that makes me hesitant on this is there have been so many talks of travel bubbles with Singapore over the last 12 months. Yeah. Mm. It just keeps mm. like, I don't know. Yeah, I'll take the high side. I think the New Zealand travel bubble, when did that open? Like September or November last year? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thereabouts. And it was no quarantine. It was no quarantine. Right. So I'm just thinking, if they started talking about a travel bubble with New Zealand in, say, May, 
um, June 2020, and then it, they thought that would happen within a few months, but then it actually took like six to nine months for it to happen. So I'm wondering if you can take like the same period where it's like they've been talking about it with Singapore for a year, so you apply the same inflation factor to it, where it takes oh, like no. 1.75 times as long as they say. You apply that to a year, it might be more like two years from when they started talking about it, which could be March next year, oh, could be later. Yeah. March feels fair. I'm, I'm happy to take the low side of that, but I think I'm, I'd push it back slightly further, but I don't. I want to be the optimist. All right. Now, I did warn Cam that if he came with Diablo 2 news, Brian would just kick him off the show because this is the only reason Brian does the podcast <laughs> uh, is to do his Diablo 2 section at the end and he would not tolerate being skipped over. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, listeners all skip over me anyway, so it's totally fine. So, in Diablo 2 news, what we have, first of all, I'm not going to comment on all the Blizzard picket lines. I'll just acknowledge that they exist. I'm only not commenting because I don't actually know what's really going on there. So it's not like I'm, I'm not taking any particular side or anything. I just don't know about it. Also, it's not Diablo 2 news. I think it's so World Diablo of news, news. I actually caught the end of a run just two days ago. Uh, they're continuing to push the Players X category. And who who got the gold? Who got the world record? Bender. Of course it was Bender. Bender. Just, I knew a thing. <laughs> Bender with the Players X Amazon. He actually got quite an audience. It was over a thousand people at the end of his run there. So for a guy who normally has about an audience of, I don't know, 50 to 100 people, people are flocking into Twitch to watch Diablo 2. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Sounds like they're trying to actually try. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to include this bit on the podcast, but I've fallen down a complete rabbit hole of the history of world records on Diablo 2. <laughs> I'm like, 3,000 words into a script for a YouTube video on it, which wow. is already 20 minutes, and I'm, like, barely into it, so... Wow. If, you want, if you want more material, there's a sort of... I can't remember the name of it, but in behavioral economics, there's this concept around how people, like, create mental barriers around certain world records, but then once someone breaks it, people realise it's possible, and then you have this, like, quick succession of people beating it, and so you saw this around the first person to race a one, I think it was a one minute mile. And four, four minute, minute mile. mile. Four minute yeah. mile, yeah, yeah. And so it all happened around the same time. One minute mile is very quick. That would be 60 miles an hour. Of... <laughs> Touche. There was a former governor of Victoria who was one of the <laughs> people who sort of, I don't think he was first, he might have been like second. But like once someone did it, all the other people who were trying for it realized it's possible. And that gave them the, the motivation to just bust it. So you might see a similar. Wow. Like, yeah, to actually try trying. Yeah, see, it's, it's a thing now. <laughs> there you go. Cool. All right. Well, that's the podcast for this week. It's been fantastic having you on, Cam. I think it's been a pleasure. Uh, you've shown what true intelligence actually looks like to our audience. <laughs> Only by bringing it and presenting it in an entirely unedited <laughs> form. I'm merely the messenger of this. Yes, thank you very much, Cam. Uh, I hope we can get you back sometime. That was a delight. speakers and guests on the podcast does not add to the time linearly but exponentially <laughs> with all the ideas.